Genesis chapter 19. Um, we're going to try to do the whole chapter, verses 1 through 38, but it's very possible we might not get through all of that. So we'll try verses 1 through 11 um, and go from there. And so let's read verses 1 through 3. It says in verse 1, Now two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Hear now, my lords, please turn in to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly so that they turned in, uh, turned in to him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before we get into completely diving into chapter 19, I want to recap chapter 18 and remind you what took place. At the beginning of chapter 18, Abraham is sitting outside the door of his tent, relaxing kind of in noon, the noonday, 12 p.m., and all of a sudden, three men out of nowhere come, and he sees them, and he looks up, and he runs over to meet them. And he says, would you guys stay? I'll cook you a meal, and all these other things. And so he waits on them. And these three people are actually two angels and God himself, taking on the appearance of three men. And this was a special, unique encounter. And so... They remind Abraham and Sarah of the promise God made that they would have a kid. And they have not had a kid in their old age yet. But then all of a sudden, as God's kind of walking away, he says, should I hide this thing that I'm doing from Abraham? And so he actually reveals to Abraham, hey, we're actually going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of the sin that has been cried out against them. And he actually kind of goes into praying and fighting for his nephew Lot. And he says, would you destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if there was 50 righteous people there? God said, no. Would you destroy it if there's like 45? He says, no. And so he keeps going down in number and going down. And then he finally says, please, please, please do not get mad at me. Let me just ask one more time. If there was 10 righteous, would you destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And he says, no. See, this is something interesting. Did you know there's something preventing God's wrath from being poured out on the world today? Even being poured out on certain countries. What is actually restraining that God's wrath is the Holy Spirit living inside of us. It's his church. And once the church is taken out of the way through the rapture, God's going to pour out his wrath on the world but it's through his church, believers like you and me and the Holy Spirit indwelling us that actually evil is constrained. So what you and I see right now is evil constrained. Think about that for a moment. This is evil constrained. And so Abraham prays for his nephew and then the two angels depart and so does the Lord. Now that picks us up in chapter 19. Now this chapter in Genesis is the most terrible chapter in the Bible. 
it reminds all of us of those sins that can be so hideous and grow. It reminds us that evil can take hold of the human heart and distort and pervert our thinking and our living. I say that with a heavy heart because this chapter is very intense. And the Bible doesn't hold any punches. That's one thing I love about the Bible. It doesn't hold its punches. It actually reveals the truth to you. The good and the bad, even about the saints and the sinners. You have these amazing people like David, and we see that he actually slept with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband. It records the flaws and the failures of both sinners and saints. And here we see sinners at their worst moments. It says in Genesis chapter 13, verse 13, But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Genesis 18, 20 says, And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because their sin is very grave or very serious. This is nothing to be taken lightly. And so in verses 1 through 3, we see lots of visitors And it says these two angels came to Sodom. Two angels. This is the first time the word angel or angels are used in Scripture. Now, why is this important? The word angel means a messenger. And they were here to deliver a message that Sodom and Gomorrah was going to be destroyed. I have a question for you. Do you think a lot knew that these were angels? What do you guys think? Do you you think that he knew these were angels? No? Why not? You guys are shaking your head no. How would he know that they're angels? Yes. Because God could have possibly revealed it to him. True. But I don't believe he knew these were angels. It says he bowed down. But anytime somebody actually saw an angelic being in like their true form, they were terrified. Literally, they fell down and started worshiping the angel, and the the angel's like, stop worshiping me. So I don't think Lot knew these were angels. And you might be thinking, how do you know that? Check out this verse. Hebrews 13 verse 2 says, Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for some who have done this, have entertained angels without realizing it. Did you know that? It's very possible that you and I can entertain angels without even knowing it. Now, how would you know that you actually entertained an angel? We might not know until we get to heaven. But how else do you guys think we might know? We might feel like we're presents or something. A presence, okay, that's true. Any other thoughts, ideas? I had a friend um, in the, he was a high school leader at the time when I was in um, high school, and his name was Jason. And he said, there was this one time he picked up a homeless man and took him to get some food. And then like when he like took him to his location, all of a sudden he said there was this weird, sweet aroma in the car afterwards. Now, some homeless people stink, <laughs> and some uh, don't have the best smells. But he says he thinks he actually entertained an angel that day. And so I was like, dang, that's kind of crazy. We don't know. 
And I don't think the thought of entertaining angels should be our motive. Oh, I'm going to minister to this homeless lady or this homeless man or this random stranger because it might be an angel. That shouldn't be our goal. Jesus says, if you give a cup of cold water to someone that needs it in my name, you've done it unto me. We should minister to everybody like it's Jesus. If Jesus walked into the room, we should tend to his needs, almost like Abraham. Abraham, when he saw these three gentlemen coming, he ran over. This guy's an old. He's probably in his hundreds right now, and he ran over. When was the last time you saw a 100-year-old man running? I can't remember the last time. <laughs> They're more like huffing and puffing and wobbling over around. <laughs> and so he actually ran and waited on them, and he hurried to cook them a meal. Are we treating people like that? Are we serving them? Something else I want us to see is who is missing in this? There's two angels, but where's the Lord? Why did three men appear to Abraham, two being the angels and one being God, and only the two angels appeared to Lot in Sodom? What do you guys think? Why do you think the Lord did not go with the two angels to Sodom? I think that the Lord can't be in the presence of evil. Like, it's just, you know, those wicked things were happening there, so he can't be over there. Okay. True. I like that answer. Any other answers? No? You had your hand raised? That was the same thing? I think that was a, that's a definite possible answer. I don't really have something solid. It is very possible that God can't really dwell with sin. And therefore, he could not come among the people of Sodom. He couldn't do it himself. It's also possible that he couldn't enter into the house of Lot because Lot was in a backslidden, compromised state. And God wouldn't have felt at home in his house. I don't know if you've ever been at a friend's house who's not a Christian, and you just kind of feel out of place there. You feel kind of odd. You don't feel like you can be really comfortable there. The Lord couldn't be comfortable at Lot's house because it wouldn't have felt like home. See, he had a union with the Lord, but he didn't have communion with the Lord. He had sonship because Lot was righteous, it says, but he did not have fellowship. Do you, do you and I have fellowship with the Lord? Do you actually get to talk with the Lord and talk with him and pray with him? And does he talk to you? He wants that relationship. It says these two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Now, why is that important they came in the evening? Well, the sun was setting, and this whole entire scene here in chapter 19 takes place at night. So I want you to picture this. It's the sun's going down, and all of a sudden, these two strangers come to Lot. And he's like, hey, stay with me. Now, there was no lights in the city that turned on. There was no light pollution. So when it got dark, it got dark. <laughs> And it got darker and darker. And it says, Lot was sitting in the gates. Now, I've read this multiple times in Scripture, but this didn't make sense until I actually went to Israel and actually saw this. When we were in uh, northern Israel, we went, we went to this place called Tel Dan. Um, 
and we saw these walls to this amazing area. And there was this little structure. Now that little structure looks like nothing to us, right? What do you guys think that looks like? What could it be? Are you guys awake? Are you guys sleeping tonight? Come on, just throw out some like answers. It doesn't matter. Yes. So they could sacrifice pigs and animals there. Okay, that's a good that's a good one. Stairs going to nowhere. That's that's possible. It's just like uh, go up to here. Um, actually, it reminds me. I went to my dad was working on this house that was like five stories tall in LA, but it was owned by a cult. And um, there was another cult place up the street. And we got a tour of it. It was it had the weirdest feeling. Like we did not enjoy being there. But there was this uh, like this kind of maze thing out in the courtyard. And one guy was walking through it. And we're like, dude, what are they doing? And apparently they walk through it. And they go to the end. And they wait at the end until they have peace. And then they walk out. And it's really weird and creepy. So maybe it's just stairs to walk up to. What else could it be? A chair? Possibly a chair. I thought pot, like potted plants on the sides or something. Like, I didn't know. Actually, this is an artist's rendition of it. You see these two areas at the bottom? These are poles going up, and a chair would sit there. This is to sit at the gate of the city. Sitting at the gate of a city actually was a place of authority. It was where the city council met, where decisions were made, where decrees were given. That's where the city kind of gathered to get uh, the judge's advice. And so when it says Lot was at the city gates, he was in a place of authority. Guess what? He was part of the Sodom City Council. Think about that. You might be thinking, why is that a big deal? Well, we're going to read the wickedness of Sodom. And he was part of this council. He was sitting in a place of honor. And Lot, when he saw the angels, he insisted that they come into his house and he cooked them a meal. And right before they go to sleep, something happens. Let's read verses 4 through 11. And verse 4 says, Now, before they lie down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men? who have come to you tonight, bring them out so that we may know them carnally. So Lot went to them and through the door and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See, now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring out to you that you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said to him, Stand back. Then they said, This one came in, staying here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we shall deal with worse, we shall deal worse with you than with them. And so they pressed him hard against the, uh, man, I'm 
Verse 9, so they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men, that means the angels, reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Now, I'm going to tell you what this means, and I'm not trying to be crude or anything. But the sun has gone down, it's pitch black, and now the only thing that's taking place as they're about to all go to sleep, sleep is these torches are coming to the city. These torches start lighting up the way, and all of a sudden, the whole entire house is surrounded, and they're pounding on the door. They're saying, hey! And it says both men are men of both old and young. The word young here means adolescent, boy, teenager, or youth. So it could be people your age. And what they are shouting in verse 5, when they say, bring them out so we can know them carnally, the NLT puts it a little more simple. They say, bring them out so we may have sex with them. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah the men of that city wanted to know them carnally. This is homosexuality. Or as our world likes to call it, same-sex attraction. Now, homosexuality is nothing new. It isn't. We see it back here in the very first book of the Bible. And that's something we need to know. That the Bible, it says in Ecclesiastes, that there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. No sin that is existing today, it already existed back then. There's nothing new. You might be thinking, well, we actually have developed technology and all these other things. The possibility for technology was already, always there. There is nothing really developed that has been new apart from God. And so homosexuality has existed from the beginning of time. Actually, not time, but more after the fall. And so it will continue to exist until Jesus comes back or he enters into the hearts of individuals and transforms them from the inside out, making them a new creation. Homosexuality will always be around us. And many people look at Genesis 19 and they say, look, Genesis 19, God hates people with homosexuality. God hates people that have those attractions towards same sex. And that is actually the furthest thing from the truth. God does not hate people like that. God does not hate homosexuals. He doesn't hate people who are struggling with their gender identity and that type of stuff. He loves them. He loves them passionately, and I firmly believe that God gave them every chance to repent, to get saved, and they rejected it. How do I know that? It's because it's consistent with the nature of God. It's consistent. Here's two verses that you should take into consideration. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's heart, his real deep down desire is that everyone would get saved. 
And guess what? Jesus' sacrifice is so great and so glorious, it could cover everybody's sin throughout time and space if everyone were to accept Jesus. But the reality is not everybody does. Not everybody wants him. Not everybody accepts him. Like we looked at on Sunday, there are either, there's two types of people. People who accept Jesus or reject him. Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11 says, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his evil way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. That's God's desire, is that we and everybody would repent and they would turn from their wicked way. Do you know why I know God probably sent a messenger to them? Think about the story of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet of God. And Jonah was sent to go preach to the people of Nineveh. Now, the people of Nineveh were wicked people also. The things they did to the cities and um, the people in the cities that they conquered is unspeakable. It makes your jaw drop. It could make your stomach turn. Yet God sent a prophet to preach to them that says, hey, destruction is going to come in eight days. And a massive revival takes place. And people change from the inside out. And they start repenting. They start weeping from the oldest to the smallest. And God actually does not destroy the city. God is faithful to deliver and give a witness. We looked at, as we went through the book of Revelation, when God pours out his wrath on the world, he still gives people a chance to repent in the midst of his wrath. That's mercy. He sends people out to share the good news. Now these two verses, 2 Peter 3.9 and Ezekiel 33 verse 11, both of these are very, or are true in every situation throughout time for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and true today. God sins messengers. He can reveal himself and he desires that people would get saved. How many of you guys know somebody who maybe is a family member or a friend um, either struggling with same-sex attraction or in that lifestyle? Okay, quite a few of us, right? We, I, I know several people. And if I were to talk to them and share with them, I would not use this portion of Scripture. The reason we're going over this portion of Scripture is because we work our way through the Bible and those portions that are a bit difficult or even hard to teach, even for me, we still go through it because it's God's word and God's word never goes away void. But if you actually were to share this to someone in that lifestyle, it'd be very hard and offensive because you're almost kind of saying, oh, God hates people in that lifestyle, but that's not the truth. And if I was going to share with somebody who was in that environment in the LGBTQ community, I would not start with this passage. You know where I would start? I wouldn't even start with the Bible yet. You might be thinking like, why wouldn't you start with the Bible? I would get to know the individual first. You guys might have heard this quote, and maybe you didn't even know who it was from. Teddy Roosevelt, uh, Theodore Roosevelt said this, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Do you guys understand what that means? In other words, 
You don't want to tell people and force information down their throats when you actually haven't even genuinely cared for that individual. And so we have to care for people before we can tell them the truth. That's one thing I learned in New York when we were evangelizing. You don't want to just hop in and talk about the gospel. You want to get to know the person. And there was actually times I never shared the gospel, and it was just a conversation. This one lady sat down in the park. Uh, actually, I sat down next to her and, at this park, and it was hot outside. And to start the conversation, I was like, hey, where do you work or whatever? And she goes, actually, I work in a building, and I'm out here de-thawing because it's so cold in my office. And we just started talking, and her break was done, so she had to leave. I never got around to Jesus. The, the conversation was short. But I would rather take it slow like that than aggressive and really hurt the person. I want to care about the individual. I want to compliment them. And so showing the person how much you care about them is important before you tell them how much you know. And after you care, and even maybe build that relationship, but after you care about the individual and you actually get to know them, maybe it's somebody you might get to see constantly. Maybe it's because you guys do uh, gymnastics together, or maybe it's because you guys play sports, or it's a family member or a friend. And maybe you already have that relationship established. If you already have that relationship established, that's even better. I, I love relational evangelism. What that means is you start first with building a relationship, and then you progress from there. But you have to pray and say, Lord, how can I intertwine the gospel into this conversation? And you got to be looking for those opportunities and praying for that right moment so that way when God comes and prompts your heart and says, now, you got to take that. Like when I was talking to the guy in New York, his name was Diego, and I was praying for him even before he sat down and I was talking to him. And all of a sudden I started talking to him and I was like, hey, where are you from? He goes, oh, I'm from Colombia. And I was like, oh my goodness, like, are you traveling like with family and friends? He's like, no, I'm by myself. And I was like, oh, snap. And so we just started talking this and that. And then he goes, dude, I love hearing about religions. And I was like, oh, like I already know how to take the conversation now. And I was like, which religion do you like hearing about the most? And he says, oh, I don't know. And I was like, well, let me tell you why Christianity is different from all other religions, and it is the best. And I went on to share. And so when you are praying and you're sensitive to the Lord in that moment, he's going to guide and lead you into that path. And so getting to know the individual, and then focusing on our hope, focusing on the gospel, focusing on Jesus is one of the most important things we can do. We can get sidetracked with issues, sidetracked with all these different things that they throw at us, but let's get back to the person of Jesus. Because if you introduce them to Jesus, it's going to change everything. Jesus is the one that says, come to me as you are. Jesus says, I don't want you to clean up your act. He goes, come with your sin, come with your problems, come with everything you are, and I love you and restore you and transform you and wash you and cleanse you. See, the major issue, we got to get to the major issue, and the major issue is sin. Sin separates people from God. And if you talk about Jesus, you're going to have to talk about sin sooner or later. Because it was our sin that drove him to the cross and why he hung on the cross for us. And so, 
you have to talk about these hard issues sometimes. You've got to talk about heaven and hell. And once you talk about that big issue, sin, and knowing Jesus, then you can take it further from there. See, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, even Jesus himself condemned all types of sin, even homosexuality. Homosexuality is just one of many sins. And I think we over-elevate it to saying, oh, this was like crazy. All sin is bad. If you've lied, that will keep you out of heaven. <laughs> even if it was a white lie, even if it was just a lie to mess with your friend, that lie will keep you out of heaven. There are people who say you can have Jesus and still live a homosexual lifestyle. You can have Jesus plus this. But that's not true. The Bible doesn't teach that. You can't have Jesus and this because Jesus wants all of you. He doesn't just want part of you. He wants all of you. He wants every aspect of your heart, every aspect of your life. It's not Jesus plus this. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Because when you realize who Jesus is, you won't want anything else. Because he loves you no matter what. He knows every bad thing about you. Every bad thing. Think about it, okay? Not everybody knows every bad thing. You guys don't even know every bad thing about me. <laughs> if you did, you might flee running this room like, ah! God knows every bad thing you have done and will do and loves you completely. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more or less. I'm going to repeat that because I don't think that sunk in. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more or less if you come to church all of your life, God doesn't love you more than the person who's never come to church. God loves us all equally with his unconditional love. But there's a problem. We are enemies, utterly helpless, ungodly sinners, and that needs to change. And even in that worst state, Jesus loved us in that. And if we accept him as our Lord and Savior, that changes that word reconcile, it means it changes our status. and We become a son or daughter, no longer enemies. There are other people who say you can be a gay Christian. But I want you to notice something. They put the word gay before Christian. There's no such thing as a black Christian. There's no such thing as a white Christian. There's no such thing as a lying Christian. There's no such thing as a drunk Christian or an angry Christian or a selfish Christian or anything else, for that matter of fact. There should be no title that goes along with Christian. It should be Christian, and that's it. And you might be thinking, why, Josh? Why should it be only Christian? Because it's Christ who defines us. If we put a title in front of Christ, then we are defining ourselves. We are defining our own identity. And we aren't allowing the Lord to define us. You and I are made in the image of God. And we can't. And when other people will tell you, 
And they will tell you this on TikTok. They'll tell you this at other churches. That you can be a gay Christian. And you can't. You can't be a Christian plus all of this stuff. You have to give up your sin. Jesus says, when he was talking to the woman who was caught in adultery, and all her accusers left, and he was left alone with this woman, he literally said, where are your accusers? She goes, nowhere. He goes, I don't condemn you anymore. Go and sin no more. When you say you're a gay Christian, you're still living in sin and trying to have Jesus in the world at the same time. It doesn't work. Now, I want to say this. I'm not trying to, if you struggle with same-sex attraction, I'm not trying to condemn you. I'm not trying to make you feel terrible. That's not my intention. See, the unfortunate part is we don't get to choose our temptation. And I bet you, if anything, you hate your temptation. You hate the sin that you struggle with. I hate the sin I struggle with. And I wish I could trade it with something else. Some people struggle with drugs. Some people struggle with insecurities. Some people struggle with anger. Some people struggle with alcohol. Some people struggle with envy or jealousy, like constantly wanting everything that everybody else has. Some people have struggles with same-sex attraction. Some people constantly lust after girls or guys of the opposite sex. We don't get to pick and choose our temptation. We're born with those things. But guess what? The Lord wants to help deliver you from that. I used to struggle with anger. And it was funny because I've told you guys this multiple times. And one time my parents were in here and Bobby asked my mom, dad, I got a question for you. Did Josh really struggle with anger? My mom's like, oh, let me tell you. And she went on to describe moments. And I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about that one. Um, but honestly, if you look at me, would you even know that I struggled with anger? The Lord can change and transform you from the inside out. That's what the gospel is. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. He can change and transform you. That's the hope. That's the confidence that we have. That we don't have to give in to sin. We don't have to live that lifestyle. And this one verse gives me hope. Actually, it's multiple verses, but check this out. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And I feel like this is a powerful portion of Scripture. It says, do you not know? Are you ignorant? He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Don't be led astray. Neither fornicators, that, that's, that word fornicator is any sexual experience outside of marriage. Or idolaters, or adulterers, or homosexuals, or sodomites, pointing back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Or thieves, or covetousness, or drunkards, or revilers, or extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But... Look at verse 11, guys. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified 
in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. He says, the church of Corinth existed and consisted of every type of sin mentioned here. In the church of Corinth, there was people struggling with homosexuality. There was people struggling with adultery. There was people struggling with all these things. He goes, but guess what? There's good news. You're not that way anymore. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you become a new creation. That old person is dead. The struggle might be there, but that old person's dead. You guys might remember this story, and for those that are possibly new to junior high, you wouldn't. My grandma died about five years ago, um, just this week, on my dad's side. Um, she was an amazing, godly woman. She had her struggles. Um, she had four kids and uh, got divorced um, when divorce wasn't a popular thing, um, got remarried, and she had her own struggles. But she, towards the end of her life, she passionately loved Jesus. She always had like hymns playing in the background. I would go to her house and she had like all these wood fixtures and it all needed to be dusted. So I would dust it all for her and she would pay me. Um, but I got to listen to her sing uh, worship songs and different things like that. And at her funeral, um, we were outside at my grandpa's house. He has like two acres. And we were talking with my aunt's friends and uh, my aunt was inside getting something. And my aunt's friend's like, hey, have you guys heard any stories about your aunt? We're like, no, tell us. We want to hear this juicy stuff. And so she starts telling us of a time where my aunt went to Biola. So it's a Christian university. And they actually uh, sat in the back of a pickup truck egging people with eggs. And so she did that. And all of a sudden, they did it to this one car. And these boys started chasing them. And they didn't know who they were. I'm not sure if they were gangsters or what, but they started chasing them. And so they're like, they're trying to lose them through the streets and they were going super fast, like speeding, blowing through stop signs and lights. And, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, let's go to the guy's dorms. And so they pull up to the guy's dorms, like on the lawn and they come out screaming, Lord, guys, help us, help us. And all these guys run out of the boy's dorm and like defend them. Um, and it was so funny because my aunt comes up and goes, what stories are you sharing? And my aunt was kind of getting embarrassed. And, uh, her friend's response was so funny, and I'll never forget it. She goes, what does it matter? That old person's dead. It was like a matter of fact. You're a new creation. All those things that you did before Christ, forgiven, done away with, out of God's mind. And that's what this verse is talking about. He goes, you were these things. Your sin did define you. But no longer does it define you because Christ's work on the cross, cross defines you. You are washed. That means you are washed from your sin, washed from your filth. You are sanctified, made holy. You are a saint now, no longer a sinner. Yes, we do sin occasionally, but our sin doesn't define us. And justified, that is made righteous in God's eyes. God looks at you through the lens of Jesus as if you lived his perfect life so that you can go to heaven. Now Galatians chapter 5 verse 21 says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This list that Paul goes over, he goes, if we practice this stuff, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's the problem. When people say, I'm a gay Christian, they're practicing that lifestyle, yet they want salvation. And God says, you can't have both. If you're practicing this sin, whether it's lying, 
whether it's doing sneaky things behind your parents' back and being disobedient to your parents, whether it's cussing, and you cuss at school, and then you, when you go home, you don't cuss at all. He says, if you practice constantly and you do this, you will not inherit eternal life. Now, our world wants to redefine things, but we cannot redefine things that God has already defined. We can't change God or His Word just to fit how we feel or what we view or how we live. God and His Word never changes. You can't improve on perfection, can you? You can't. And so we have to change. Some will say homosexuality is not a sin, but that is not the truth. They are redefining sin. What God has declared a sin is still a sin. And I'll say this. I know we're not going to get through this whole chapter. <laughs> um, there's different types of sin. And what do I mean by that? For instance, there's hidden sin. There's a sin that you possibly, and I've done this, there's a sin that I committed that nobody else knew about. Not a single person knew. And I kept it to myself. So there's hidden sin. But then there's hidden sin that other people know. And you might talk about it with people. Um, guys tend to do that in the secular world. Uh, it's kind of very gross about the people they sleep with and different things like that. But then there's visible sin. There's visible sin. There's some people that actually live a sinful lifestyle, but they're not going to jam it down your throat. It's part of them. It's what they do. But if you want to go to church, that's fine. That's your thing. But then there's others that actually live in visible sin, and they want to force their sin upon you, that you would accept it and embrace it and even praise it. That's the idea. When I went to New York, we were there for the gay pride parade. And it was literally glorified. Flags everywhere. Praising sin. That's what it is. That's what the Bible is saying. It's not what I'm saying. If you've got a problem with it, don't take it up with me. Actually, if you want to talk about it, we can talk about it. But this is what God's Word is saying. And God loves every single person. But they were praising it. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 9 says, They... Uh, the look on their faces gave them away. They displayed their sin like the people of Sodom. They didn't even try to hide it. They are doomed. They didn't try to hide it. When people don't want to hide their sin, that means they've accepted it. That means they've taken it past a barrier that it should go. Because if we're not blushing over our sin, if we are not embarrassed about our sin, there's a problem. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 15 says, are they ashamed of their disgusting actions? Not at all. They don't even blush. Therefore, they will lie among the slaughter, and they will be brought down, and I will punish them, says the Lord. I don't know about you guys, but I'm not sure if you've experienced an embarrassing moment. When our, if I were to put our sin on the board, I would definitely blush. I'd be like, turn it off! I would not like that. I'm thankful that God does not do that. But when we don't blush over sin, 
when it doesn't affect us anymore, we're entering into dangerous territory. And we're going down this road where it's going to get worse and worse and worse. If you blush and you get embarrassed over your sin, that is good. It's healthy. Because we should be. But we should rejoice that God doesn't hold us accountable for those sins. He wants to forgive us. And he says, according to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he says, those who confess their sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise. And you can take that to the bank every time. And when you ask for forgiveness, literally it says in Hebrews that God doesn't remember it anymore. It's done away with. You're good. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, He who covers sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. The Lord wants to be merciful to you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to have a relationship with us. But do we want to have a relationship with him? And I got to say this, homosexuality is not the greatest sin. You know what the greatest sin is? Murder? No, it's not the greatest sin. What's the greatest sin? Rejecting Jesus. That is the greatest sin. That's the greatest tragedy of all time is when people reject the lights. They reject sin. And so, listen, we didn't get to go through this whole entire passage or chapter, but I love you guys. And this passage we can't take this passage and isolate it. We have to look at all of Scripture and look at God's heart. And His heart is for people. His heart is, He says, I've taken your sin upon my cross, upon the cross. He died for us. And He wants you to have eternal life. And so, it doesn't matter what sin we struggle with, honestly. But confess it to the Lord. And if you need to confess it to one of us leaders, then talk to us. Trust me, I'm not going to think of you any differently. I've had people tell me this, that, this, that, and it's just like, I'm not going to think of you differently, honestly. I want to help you. I'm going to love you no matter what. If you choose to reject Jesus, I had a friend of mine. He says, I'm an atheist. And I said, that's not going to change how I feel about you and our relationship. It might change it a little bit, but that's not going to change. I'm going to continue to be your friend, even though you claim to be an atheist and I'm a Christian. And I continue to be that person's friend for a long time. And so, even to this day, if you hit me up, I would totally be like, dude, let's go, let's hang out. I'm down to hang out because Jesus was a friend of sinners. He associates sinners because he's not afraid to be associated with you. Because he likes you and he loves you.